Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, part five, and the conclusion of Immunity for Murder, the Veronica Taft story with David M. Beers. Today, we're going to discuss the aftermath, the defense theory of a ruthless killer, Chucky Pratt, and an imaginary friend. David, is there anything else you would like to add at this point regarding the aftermath of the trial? Uh, you're finding out about um, Veronica Taft trying to build a new life. It took it took more than a year to get her two youngest kids back, and she struggled with uh, issues in family court, both in Binghamton and up in upstate New York where she was living. And then uh, her uh, her oldest daughter, Havine, was kind of a different story. She uh, she had been placed in a pre-adoptive pre-adoptive home and was on the verge of being adopted then you know she told me you know she could have lost her forever but it was kind of in the nick of time and 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 she did it took another two years but she had she finally got Haveen back uh in February of 2020 so just just about six months before I interviewed Veronica for the for the book but 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 she explained how uh you know she had come back down to Broome County New York in in family court and, and kind of on a more positive note, the same CPS attorney who had filed that motion uh, for CPS to exclude that information during the trial actually came up to Veronica during one of her family court proceedings and, uh, and apologized to her and, and said to her, uh, I never believed you killed your son. And then there was a, a senior caseworker, also a woman, who also came up to her and, and said, uh, you know, I'm so sorry. So, so it seemed as though you know CPS knew all along, because it was, it was that was the way they wrote it up in their reports that that Chucky had done this. So it seemed as though they knew all along that Veronica had nothing to do with it. But I guess at the time their their, their hands were tied. It was uh it wasn't their decision. It was the police and DA decision to uh, to go after her. So that was uh. That was a major part of the the aftermath and putting her life back together, and it's it's still a struggle even to this day. But uh, she's found a job. She she you know, got her driver's license and a car, and so she's she's a fighter. You know, I talked to her mom again. She's been up to see Veronica and the kids, and very supportive of her daughter. She's a lot lot like her daughter, <laughs> character similarities. But you know, that's that's pretty much uh, there, there, there's more to the aftermath, I'm sure. David, before we move to mm-hmm. your defense theory, let's talk a little bit about the power of authority that prosecutors have. 
today. What's your opinion on how that's being used overall, good or bad? What have you seen in your career? Well, I, it, it, I've, I've seen uh, I've seen some that are uh, it can work both ways. Uh, they're, they're, you know, a prosecutor, uh, you know, like like I wrote in the book, has a great deal of power and authority over life and liberty and freedom of, of every everybody. And uh, you know, when they're at their best, uh, you know, they can be a very valuable asset to our criminal justice system. But when they engage in uh, misconduct or malpractice or what have you, uh, and they and they do things that they shouldn't be doing that are unethical or unprofessional or what have you, then they become one of the worst because they have that they have so much authority. So so I, I, I touched on that a little bit in the book uh, about you know how that how that can happen. And you you say often throughout the book that you are pro police and that you believe for the most part. Police and prosecutors are trying to do their job in the best way possible, but there are sometimes when they go astray or they're led astray. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I'm very pro law enforcement. You know, I, I was a law enforcement officer, and and I, I worked with some of these men and women, and uh, you know, this is totally unlike them. You know, I, I'd never seen anything like this before. So it's nothing personal. It's just my uh, my perspective of what happened here, and and something went terribly wrong. And, and the appellate court kind of just kind of reaffirmed all that. And uh, it's very troubling uh, that this type of thing can happen. Because like, you know, like I wrote in the book, you know, more often than not, you know, these police officers, you know, they're, they're highly trained, they're respected, uh, they have a hard job to do, and, and, and most of them do it very well uh, within the constraints of the law. But for some reason, there, there comes times when they don't. That's when bad things happen, unfortunately. At one point you write, it's been said that trust, once lost, is like a stone that's been cast, a word that's been said, or a time after it's gone. In other words, it can't be restored. Unfortunately, when errors or wrongful acts are discovered during the pursuit of justice, they're often viewed as a failure or sign of weakness. Sadly, they're sometimes remedied by turning a blind eye, avoiding, rejecting, denying, or even hiding their existence. When this happens, the integral foundation of our justice system is threatened, likely resulting in a miscarriage of justice. And that's exactly, it seems, what happened here. Yeah, I think that it took me a while to, uh, to write that paragraph, but uh, maybe, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with, with that, that, uh, yeah, that's what happened here. They, uh, they could have remedied this uh, by, by sticking with uh, their case on Chucky and uh, everything would have been fine. Like, like, like I did write in there one, one place where, um, you know, th this case started out rather straightforward, you know, with everything pointing to Chucky, but it, but it only got more complicated when they, when they turned the tides and went after Veronica, you know, if they'd stayed on Chucky, uh, he probably could have been arrested within days, but as it was, the investigation got prolonged for like eight months. And and even then, they didn't have any evidence to speak of other than the cry ladies and the jailhouse snitch and the, and the bizarre uh, uh, assumptions and possibilities that the time of death could have been done, could have been earlier. It just, none of it made any sense to me. Will you please share the defense's theory of who the killer was and what happened? Yeah. The best I can recall without reading it right out of the book, on uh, December 29th, 2010, Veronica's daytime babysitter was there. His name was Ray Ramos. So he was there watching the kids during the day. 
while Veronica ran some errands, then later did some grocery shopping with Chucky. So he, he fed the kids uh, around lunchtime and then again uh, around 5 o'clock with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And then Veronica came home with, with Chucky and they unloaded the groceries. Then Chucky went over to Max's house to play video games until it was time to come back over to babysit so Veronica could go to work. So for a while, she was there alone with the kids, all four kids, including Lyric. But, you know, she had uh, just a few days earlier, she'd had a miscarriage and she was pretty tired, pretty weak and tired easily. So she uh, she took advantage and, and laid down for a while while the kids and she got the kids ready for bed in their pajamas. And uh, they kind of their routine was to watch movies in their room. They had a VHS player in there. So they were doing that. So she she rested for a while and then. She kind of woke up in a panic thinking she was going to be late for work, but it wasn't as late as she thought, and Chucky wasn't there yet. So she started getting uh, dressed for work, and then Chucky comes in, or just before that, now, you know, Lyric walks in, and he needs his diaper changed. So she did that, and then uh, he walked back. The last time she saw him, he was walking back to his room to watch, finish watching movies with his sisters. And then uh, Chucky comes in. Uh, and a few minutes later, his brother Jamel, and then Lynette Pica. And also, you know, Lynette uh, joins Veronica in her bedroom while she's getting dressed, and they're talking about doing something for New Year's. And uh, it was around this same time that Veronica, you know, preheated the oven for the tater tots and the french fries. And then she runs into the room and says goodbye to the kids, maybe gives them each a kiss or whatever, says goodbye. And then her, her ride gets there. She hears a horn honk, and she walks out, and uh, she goes to work just, just before 11. Uh, so Chucky's there with the kids. So he, uh, he finishes getting dinner ready, goes in, tells the kids, uh, says hi to the kids, you know, and fixes their plates and sets it on the little table in the living room where they always ate. And uh, then he fixes a plate for his brother, and they go back in the game room to play video games. Then he comes out later, and he sees uh, all the kids' plates are empty. So he assumes they all ate. So when Veronica gets to work, she, she ended up calling Chucky about 20 after 11 or so just to check on the kids, make sure he'd fed them, make sure they were okay. So he assured her they were, uh, and she went back to work. And Chucky continued uh, playing video games with his brother. The kids were all in bed. Then... Uh, a, a little later, uh, like 1.30 or so, Veronica calls him again. She's thinking about coming home to get a 3D movie that they had that she could take back and and watch with her coworkers if they had time. But as it turned out, they didn't have time because they were busy, so she never, never went home. Then uh, around 12.30, Jamel, uh, who, who's with Chucky, says he's getting tired and... Uh, well, Chucky says he's getting tired, and, and, he, and he gets in his sleep clothes. And Jamel says, yeah, yeah I'm getting tired, too. So he uh, he leaves, goes back to Chucky's house to spend the night. So now Chucky's there alone with the kids. So now it's about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and the kids have all been asleep, probably sleeping for two or three hours. And it, it's not clear what Chucky was doing, whether whether he was uh, had gone to bed or if he was still playing a video game or what have you, but so it, it doesn't really matter. But 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 something around this time uh, uh, prompted Lyric to wake up. Whether it was a nightmare, he needed a diaper change, 
upset stomach from his late night meal or, or maybe just uh, needed a glass of water. Not clear. But whatever it was interrupted Chucky and he wasn't happy and he got angry and, and he wasn't even listening to Lyric. He just yelled at him and said, you know, get back in your bed. And Lyric was frustrated, didn't know what to do. He's the only one there, mom's at work. So he had to turn to Chucky. So he just stood there frightened and he tries to uh, tell him what he needs and he just get yelled at again. And Chucky just said, you know, get back in your room. So Lyric just stood there, didn't know, didn't know what to do. He's crying. And now Chucky gets a little concerned that it's going to wake up the other kids. So he, uh, he reaches out to try to grab Lyric, which made matters even worse. Uh, so now he's getting even angrier. Lyric's getting more frightened. And he, he starts to run. He, he's afraid Chucky's going to do something to him. So he takes off. And, and that makes Chucky even angrier. So he starts chasing him around the room. Uh, you know, trying to catch up to him and silence him. And, uh, of course, small little apartment. There's not really many places to go, and Lyric's no match for Chucky. And uh, so he catches up to him, grabs him behind the neck, and uh, yanks him right up off the floor and starts flinging him around like a rag doll. His legs and arms fly, flailing around and... He lets out a squeal. Now, now Chucky's uh, frightened that uh, the other kids are going to wake up, and he needs to silence him quick. So he uh, runs across the floor uh, and, and ends up slamming them into the wall with his head into the wall like twice. And then Lyric falls to the floor, but he's not done yet. Now, then he reaches down, he punches him in the head, leaving a knuckle marks on his face. And then he kicks him across the kitchen floor into the kitchen. Now, Lyric stops moving. He's motionless, just lying there. And by now, he's uh, severely injured. He's got a brain uh, injury, a lacerated liver, and he's bleeding to death internally with half his blood volume in going into his abdomen. He's dying of either a, a brain injury or a lacerated liver. So Chucky finally stops his rage and looks around and realizes what he's done and, and then realizes that, that he's got to, you know, do something to make it look like this never happened. At one point, too, he was booting him around the kitchen, uh, you all theorized, because he had a sore, was it a sore ankle that he was displaying? Yeah, I, I, think, it's, I think at some point he actually stomped on Lyric's chest, uh, which, which might explain the, uh, the bruising that was there on his chest and then kicked him into the kitchen. And at some point, I think that's when he, uh, he uh, twisted or injured his ankle, uh, which, which Veronica and uh, her sister had both uh, observed uh, in the days following the, the incident. So yeah, good point. Uh, but that is in the book. So anyway, uh, so now he's, he's assessing the, the, what he has done and, and he realizes that uh, I, I, I gotta do something here or I'm going to be in some big trouble. So he decides the best thing to do is, uh, you know, get Lyric, uh, get him up and, you know, get him back in bed and just pretend nothing happened. So and he, he decides the best way to do that is, you know, go get a, a blanket and wrap him up and, and put him back in bed. So he runs in the kid's room, grabs Havine's uh, pink Barbie comforter and uh, comes out and he starts to roll up Lyric in the comforter. And as he's doing that, he realizes that there's, 
there's excrement all over Lyric's pajamas and the comforter, and, and it's all over the kitchen floor. Veronica's mom pointed that out when she saw the police photo. She said that, you know, it never, never looked like that. It was spotless. So he, uh, as he's doing that, he sees all this excrement or poop, if you will, all over the comforter, the Lyric's pajamas, the floor, even his own pajamas or his own sleep clothes. So now he's got uh, another problem. So, so now he takes, he, he, he's got to get this cleaned up. So he takes Lyric into the bathroom, puts him in the tub, takes off all his clothes, puts him in the tub, cleans him up, washes him clean, tosses the clothes aside, throws him out in the kitchen. Didn't Havine tell one of the investigators that uh, yeah. she did remember, this maybe was this was later, but that she did remember him uh, bathing, the sound of him bathing Lyric in the bathroom? Yeah, that was something we didn't cover. That was actually, I learned that from uh, Lyric's godmother, who had been, uh, the kids, had, the girls had been with her for a while, and, and just kind of out of the blue, uh, Havine tells her that uh, she was awake and heard Chucky uh, hitting Lyric that night and, and, and later giving him a bath. But this is coming from a little five-year-old, so... We didn't know what to make of it, you know, whether there's something she made up or heard along the way or, you know, whether there's some truth to it. But that that's, that statement actually prompted me to take a closer look uh, at these missing items, uh, pajamas and the comforter cause, uh, and then the stained towel in the bathroom. So all of those things started to click and come together to, to help explain what might have happened. So that left a large wet white towel with brown staining on the floor alongside yeah. of a wet blue washcloth. Yep. So I'm uh, so Chucky. He he, uh, he puts Lyric in the tub. He's probably uh, either unconscious or already dead. And uh, so he strips off his pajamas and his diaper and gets them all cleaned up. And then he takes them into Veronica's room, grabs a clean diaper, and and while he's putting on the diaper, you know his his uh, his knuckles are bleeding because when when he smashed Lyric's head into the wall. He, he scraped his knuckles along the wall, which which made him even angrier. But but now they're bleeding, and and whether he realized it or not, you know the the blood's trickling down his fingers. And when he puts that diaper on, some specks of his blood, you know, transfer onto the diaper, including a a bloody thumbprint. And then uh, he couldn't find another pair of Lyric's pajamas, so he's searching through the the laundry, and he, all he could find was some street clothes. So he dresses him in street clothes, uh, blue jeans and a shirt and a hoodie, and then uh, puts him back in bed, covers him up right next to his sister, Amira, on the bottom bunk. Now he comes back into the kitchen, and, and he's still got to clean up the mess on the floor. So, <laughs> so he, he peels off his own uh, pajamas and, and Lyric's pajamas and the comforter and bundles them all up. Uh, and, and stashes them in this big uh, black plastic bag with, with a pink comforter right on top. And he ties it shut, and he, he there's no place to put it, really, so he uses the, his best option and takes it into the kid's bedroom and just sets it on the floor in a closet as if it, you know, belonged there. Nobody would bother to look, and they didn't. So anyway, <laughs> uh, so then he gets dressed. He gets into, into his regular street clothes. Uh, and then finishes cleaning up in the, in the uh, kitchen. So Lyric's back in bed, and uh, the kitchen's all cleaned up. So there isn't, there isn't any sign of, of anything 
that happened. So, but by now, Lyric, Lyric could, could very well have already been dead or, or he's dying. Because uh, the, the doctor said that uh, based on the, the amount of swelling to the brain, uh, he probably lived for about an hour hmm. after he was injured. So anyway, uh, Chucky finishes cleaning up in the kitchen, but he's still concerned uh, about Veronica coming home because ordinarily he knew that the first thing she would do was go check on the kids. And, and, and that was pretty routine. But so as part of his plan, he waits right at the front door and, and greets her as soon as she comes in and assures her that the kids are all fine. Yeah, I just checked on them. Uh, you're, you're tired. You need your rest. You're on vacation. You need your sleep. Just, yeah, just, go, just go lay down and get some rest. And she just accepted that, went in and, and laid down and not knowing, had no clue that uh, what had happened to Lyric and that he was actually uh, uh, in his bed, either dead or dying. So I, I, I believe that's, you know, and that and that scenario that I just described was, was actually uh, what I consider a logical scenario based on what I knew, as well as what I learned from, from the police and the, for their photographs and all that. And, the, and, the, and, the, and I think that towel on the bathroom floor was used by Chucky to... Uh, to help clean up Lyric, and he just left it there. But that, that was never examined, and nor was the uh, any of those articles in the black bag. We'll return with Part 5 of Immunity for Murder right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Obviously, there could be some variations to that scenario, which I just uh, explained in the book. Uh, but I think for the most part, what prompted Chucky to do this was his, uh, he was upset by what Lyric had done, whatever it was, and uh, he took it out on him. He got, he got angry. And, and which also, you know, when, when, when that part where I described where Lyric ran away, that, that falls right into, line, right into line with what Chucky told his brother on the phone. This little N-word is running around doing mad shit. So, you know what I mean? And uh, yep. And, and that's what he was doing. And uh, he also said, I ain't getting the death penalty for no accident. I ain't getting death penalty for no accident. And, and he actually he actually told the police in uh, uh, a second interview with his attorney present that uh, when they were talking about feeding the kids, he said, well, I didn't see him, but but I heard his voice. So, you know, what does that tell you? I mean, he's, he's alive. You, you're right at one point. The botched crime scene work was bad enough, but there was more, much more. When referring to the evidence, how often did we hear the words insignificant or no evidentiary value? Apparently, the only physical evidence they felt was significant was that extremely warm temperature in the kitchen three weeks later, or that black spoon three months later. Where in contrast, when considering the more compelling evidence, such as the blood-stained diaper or lyric skin under fingernails, there was no evidentiary value. Or it could have been anyone in that household. Similarly, according to investigator Zandi, the fingernail marks he saw and photographed on Lyric's neck were of no significance. Even though his other injuries made it clear he'd been severely beaten. Evidently, that wasn't significant enough to alert investigators to recommend getting DNA and fingernail scrapings. All of this coming from two forensic crime scene investigators with several years of experience. 
Yeah. How right you are. Exactly. Yeah, that, that kind of sums it up. You know, that That's what I was doing there was summing up everything. Uh, yeah, boy, it was uh, it was really botched bad uh, in a number of ways. Tell us about the notice of claim. After this was all over, you know, Veronica uh, reached out to uh, to find an attorney that might be willing to uh, file a notice of claim on her behalf uh, for this wrongful conviction. And and she found a, a law firm in Syracuse that uh, adopted her case, and they put together a, a notice of claim that um, was filed with the, uh, the Court of Claims and the Attorney General, I believe, of New York State under uh, a wrongful conviction clause. They put together this notice of claim based on a, uh, a law that was passed several years ago for wrongful convictions. And uh, so that, that notice of claim is pending, but it's seeking uh, monetary damages for the wrongful conviction and uh, everything that, that she lost and suffered you know, during that time. One would think that a lot of the people who were involved in this miscarriage of justice would have been somehow demoted or moved to other positions. Is that what happened? Uh, no. Um, in fact, most of them got promoted. So it was career enhancement for them. Yeah, unless something's changed. But when I wrote the book, let's see, uh, DeLucia left the district attorney's office and he, he, uh, he went with the New York State Attorney General's office. His co-counsel went with uh, another uh, legal firm. Stebbins? Stebbins, she, uh, she left Binghamton PD and went with, uh, for a brief period with the county, Broome County Sheriff's Department, and then later uh, with the Johnson City Police Department, which is uh, right nearby. And as far as I know, she's still with them. Uh, How about Mullen? Mullen, he got voted out of office, but he received a promotion and went with the uh, uh, Convictions Bureau. I believe it's called the Convictions Bureau with the New York State Department of Criminal Justice Services. I think he's since retired, but that was uh, an advanced position for him. A, a couple of the uh, investigators uh, received promotions. One of them promoted to... Uh, captain in charge of detectives and another one uh, actually left the Binghamton PD to accept a new position with the county as, as an overdose uh, investigator. So you know, so none of them uh, suffered any consequences from, from what they did. In, in fact, they, they probably uh, made out better. One last story. Tell me about the imaginary friend. That was pretty interesting. When I, when I first heard about that, uh, it kind of made me shiver. <laughs> After the appellate court decision came out, Dave Butler uh, received a call from uh, a bureau chief of New York Times. His name was Jesse McKinley. And, and, and the, he was intrigued by the decision and, and wanted to learn something more. Uh, so he, he came up and I, actually I, I met with him and, and Dave Butler at, at Dave's office and we went over some of the details. and. Uh, and it actually ended up giving him copies of nearly the entire case file because he, he wanted to kind of launch his own investigation. So we did that. And when we would communicate periodically uh, as he moved forward, he, we would have questions once in a while. So I'd steer him in the right direction. And we, we were always on the same page. He, he felt you know the same way we did about this whole case. But one of the interesting things he did uh, that I didn't know about uh, that he had actually gone back to the old neighborhood where Veronica used to live. 
and uh, and he reported that for the for the most part the lyrics murder had largely faded amongst uh, in the area, but he actually went to the to the to the apartment Veronica used to live in and, and talked to the current occupant there. Her name was uh, last name was Clay, her husband, and, and they had a young daughter. And then, you know, prior to McKinley going there, they had, they'd never heard of uh, the murder of Lyric Taft. But interestingly, when, when they were talking, uh, Mrs. Clay uh, tells McKinley that uh, her, her six-year-old daughter uh, had an imaginary friend that she played with in the back bedroom, the same back bedroom where this murder occurred. And uh, they would laugh and giggle, and she would even buy them gifts. Uh, at Christmas time and so forth, uh, you know, cars, trucks, that type of thing. <laughs> so McKinley asked her. He says, "Well, what does she call him?" So she, so she, she asked her daughter. Her daughter's right there, and and she didn't recognize the name. So she, the mom says to, to her, "You know, you know, write it out on the blackboard for me." So she did, and then Mr. Clay was right there, and he and he read it to McKinley, and he said, "The boy's name." was Elric. <laughs> How did it spell? E-L-R-I-C-K, I believe. Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I, I've gotten some comments on that. My, I have a couple of nephews that are, uh, they like crime stories and they like the real work that I do. And uh, they, they were impressed with that. That one of them said, you know, did that really happen? I said, yeah, it really happened. I said, you know, he said, yeah, it made me shiver. He said, yeah. You know, for what it's mm. worth, uh, that was that was pretty uh, pretty interesting. Well, fantastic story. Thank you very much for bringing it to us, and thank you very much for your involvement in this, uh, as well as uh, in Reign of Injustice, which also was a fascinating story. Could you please tell our listeners how to find your books and uh, the names of them both again? Yeah, uh, yeah. My first book that we we did a couple of weeks ago is called Reign of Injustice. It's the Cal Harris story. It was about a 15-year ordeal that Cal Harris went through, including four trials. And uh, the body of uh, his wife uh, went missing and uh, never found, and never found a murder weapon. Uh, interesting story. And then uh, Immunity for Murder, the Veronica Taft story that we just discussed. You know, they're both available uh, uh, on Amazon. Uh, you can probably find them online through Barnes & Noble or Walmart. So if you just type in the, the name of the books, uh, it should pop right up. They're also uh, available on my website, uh, which is just davidmbeers.com. And you can also find them on uh, the Amazon uh, uh, Independent Author Network. You just go to Independent Author Network and plug in the name, my name or the book name, and, and it'll come right up. And it'll send you to the links where you can. Uh... Well, thanks for your story today, David. Immunity for Murder, the Veronica Taft story by David M. Beers, spelled B-E-E-R-S. Very glad you've spent this kind of time telling us these stories. We appreciate it. We hope, of course, that the exposure gets people to buy the books. There's a lot in the books that we didn't cover here. In fact, you'll find that listening to these interviews will be a good primer for you. So you'll that much. So you'll be that much more entertained by the actual story itself, including the trial. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, that uh, all the details are in the book. So we, we, we bounced around a little bit, but the book kind of puts it all together kind of chronologically and, and, and it details it uh, pretty well. 
and, and it'll answer a lot more questions. Uh, Thanks for joining us, everyone, at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We appreciate reviews, and we appreciate our Patreon supporters at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. Until next Sunday night, until this, until this coming Sunday night, we'll bring a brand new episode this coming Sunday night. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.